Hope everyone's doing well today. Hope you had a great week. Brother Eldon, it's good to see you back today. Glad you are here. Eldon has been sick over the last couple weeks and I'm glad he's here today. Good to see you, brother. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Appreciate uh, everyone that made our Valentine banquet such a huge success this year and we had a wonderful time together and had a, had a good crowd and great games and activity and just awesome Christian fellowship and uh, so appreciate everybody that worked so hard in participating, coming out, being a part of our church family, our church events. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, it's, I think it's important that we not only worship together but that we play together. Uh, that's important and if you're missing out on these church functions you're missing a big part of what Victory Church is all about uh, so uh, thank you ladies uh, that were involved in that so thanks for coming out all right everybody settled in and open your Bibles first Corinthians chapter 5 we will continue through um, what is a difficult chapter uh, church discipline is never ever easy uh, Sunday a week ago I had to be out of town and I called Brother Darrell and I said will you just uh, cover chapter 5 for me <laughs> he said sure I think he said that before he went there and saw what was there <laughs> but he did a good job appreciate him doing that uh, but chapter 5 is does deal with church discipline and um, if you remember back in chapter 1 we talked about several different things about the Christian we talked about the Christian's calling uh, there was some trouble at the church at Corinth uh, one thing I think, before we even get into all of that, one thing I think you need to remember is that this church was a relevant, legitimate, real church, just like Victory Church today. Uh, sometimes we look back and we think, oh, that was a church at Corinth, and that was thousands of years ago, and that's not even relevant today, and, and that was them, and this is now, and what does that even apply to us? It's, it's the New Testament church. And that's what we are. Regardless how far down the road we've, we've come from that, we're still in the New Testament age, the church age. And, um, and so what was taking place there needs to be taking place even today. Now I realize, matter of fact, um, uh, I ran across a, um, some legal aspects to, in our day, in our culture today, where people are taking pastors to court and suing them for practicing church discipline. And that's the day that we're in. Uh, many of those pastors were losing. And, and uh, judges in the courts in our day were saying, you know what, you can't do that. And you can't say someone's doing whatever and excommunicate them out of the church. And you've ruined their reputation and their name. And, and there have been lawsuits in our day um, where people have taken the church and the pastor primarily to court, which is one of the reasons why our church is incorporated in other words, all they're going to get is the church's stuff. There's a, almost a, a boundary there. They can't really get into my personal stuff. But, and you realize, I don't even know if you know this, we pay literally thousands of dollars a year for insurance against lawsuits. And so that's where some of your tithe and offering goes so that we can protect ourselves. And it's kind of a sad and unfortunate that we're in that day, but that's where we are on the legal side of it. Where people don't like what's being said, don't like what's being told, and they just haul you in the court and sue you. The bad thing about it is we have uh, attorneys all across the nation that are, that are just thriving like hungry dogs, just foaming at the mouth, waiting for an opportunity uh, to do that. Uh, but we've got to stand true on God's word. 
And we've got to stand true on what God's Word teaches. And God's Word does teach about church discipline. And that just certainly, that just means that, that we as Christians and believers, as members of Victory Church, there is some accountability placed on us. And there is a tremendous amount of responsibility on how we live our lives and what we're involved in and what we're doing. And that's what we find here in the church at Corinth. Remember, there were problems in this church. Uh, there were divisions in the church. Um, and that was, if that wasn't bad enough, now the church is completely disgraced, not only within the membership of the church, people out in the community know about the sin that is in the church. And the sad thing about it is that the church was puffed up with pride. They didn't see any wrong uh, with the sin that was taking place in the church. And God help us if we ever get to that that state. But look what it says. It says uh, in chapter 1, as, just in review as we've been talking, we talked about the Christian's calling. Uh, we talked about what we've been called to be as Christians. One of those things that Paul says we've been called to be is holy. I mean, we are to strive to live a holy life the best that we can. Another thing we see in chapter number 2 is we see the Christian's message that we, the church, are responsible to get the message of the gospel out. That's why we are we are here. In chapter 3, Paul addresses the church. In chapter 4, Paul addresses the ministry. In chapter 5 and 6, he's addressing the church discipline that is taking place. Now, I can't go back and uh, rehash all that we have taught over the past two weeks now on the first uh, six or so verses of chapter 5, but I do want to go back and read those verses and get into the latter part of the chapter, verses 6 down through chapter number 13. So the Bible reads this. It is widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that's not even condoned among the Gentiles. A man is living with his father's wife and you are inflated with pride instead of filled with grief so that he who has committed this act might be removed from among you. For though absent in body but present in spirit, I have already decided about him who has done this thing as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And once again, we parked here last week and talked about what authority did the church have to carry out this discipline. It wasn't the authority of the name of the pastor. It wasn't the authority of the name of the church. It wasn't the authority of the leadership of the church. The authority came from the person of Jesus Christ in the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of our Lord Jesus when you are assembled together, or when you are assembled along with my spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's as far as we really got last week, and we started unpacking that phrase, turn him over to Satan, and what all that means. And if you missed that, and you'd like to hear the teaching on that, you can go to our podcast, and there you can get the teachings, or you can purchase the CD, and you can get that. We're going to pick up in verse 6, down through the last part of the chapter, uh, verse number 13, and, and focus on that this morning. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast permeates the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch since you are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. And therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old yeast or with the yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, by no means referring to this world's immoral, immoral people, 
or to the greedy and the swindlers or to the idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. I'll unpack that in just a moment. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what is it to me to judge outsiders? Do you not judge those who are inside? But God judges outsiders. Therefore, he wraps up with a quote from Deuteronomy 17, 7, where he says, put away the evil person from among yourselves. Let's pray and let's ask the Holy Spirit to open up our hearts and our minds and to help us rightly divide and interpret uh, and understand and comprehend the Word of God this morning. Father, we stand in need of your presence today as we deal with a very sensitive subject, the subject of church discipline. And God, that's a hard thing to do. It's a hard place to be in as a pastor and a leader of a local New Testament church. But God, we've got to let your word be true and every man a liar. We've got to stand on what thus saith the Lord. And we must stand on the teachings of your word. Therefore, as difficult and as hard as it, as it is, we as a church must practice church discipline. But help us to practice it in a way filled with hearts that are broken, broken and filled with hearts filled with compassion and love towards a sinning brother or sister so that that individual could be restored into a right fellowship with you. I pray that you'd open up our hearts. May the Holy Spirit illuminate the scripture this morning so that we can have a better understanding of your word today. I ask your blessings on our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In verses 1 and 2 last week and uh, two weeks ago actually, Daryl started this and I expounded more on it last week. We talked about how the church should mourn over sin. And whenever we're carrying out church discipline or starting that process, which by the way, if you remember last week, I told you Jesus gave us a process on how to do that. And that's in Matthew chapter number 18. You have, and you may remember how, how, we, how, how church discipline really begins. Do we, do we understand and know that? Matthew chapter 18. Anybody tell me, what's the first thing we do? Go one-on-one. Go one-on-one. That's you to somebody else, and they're a believer. They're involved in our church, members of our church. They're born-again believers and Christians. They've been overtaken in a fault or in a sin. We're to go to that person one-on-one as brother-to-brother. And the book of Galatians says we're to go to that individual. Ye that are spiritual, go to that individual. And by the way, what does it mean, ye that are spiritual? Does that mean that we are self-righteous, holy policemen? carrying around a Holy Ghost billy stick and beating everybody back into the line that we are walking? No, no. The phrase, ye that are spiritual, the word picture we find there is the very same word picture from the Greek language back to the Hebrew language of how when Moses was meeting with God on Mount Sinai and he came down, he had the Ten Commandments and the Shekinah glory of God was just, was just being reflected off the face of Moses. And if you remember, the people could not even look at him. You remember that in the Old Testament? And what did Moses have to do? Anybody? Right. Moses had to put a veil over his face. Why did he have to do that? Because the people could not look on the glory of God. Now, question, 
did Moses know that he was radiating such? No. He did not know that. He had been in a tremendous meeting with God. He was in one of the most high spiritual moments of his life. And he didn't come down the mountain with a holier-than-thou attitude. He just came down the mountain just to meet with the people. And they could not look on him. So he had to put a veil over his face so that they could not see the glory of God reflecting, radiating from him. Guys, that's the same spirit that we're to go, as it says in the book of Galatians, when we go to a brother that's overtaken in a fault, ye that are spiritual, go to such a one. We're going to that one not on some self-righteous high horse. We're going to that one just as a Christian brother with a heart that's broken. And the Bible says we're also to do what? Consider ourselves lest we what? Lest we fall into temptation and that sin. In other words, we're going to this Christian brother to restore that one, realizing that, hey, I could be in your very shoes. I could be the one that had fallen to this particular sin, whatever. Now, the motive in going is to do what? Is it to judge that individual and rebuke him and, and prosecute them and condemn them? That's not, that's not our intent, our motive. The motive is what? To restore. To restore that one into a right fellowship and relationship with the Lord. So the first step is one-on-one. Go to that individual one-on-one. What's the second step? If they do not respond, hopefully and prayerfully, they'll have a heart filled with repentance once they're convicted and approach with their sin hopefully and prayerfully they'll submit to that and, and, and repent of that and be restored and it's done but usually there's something called pride that just rises up in us to the point that I cannot believe you expose something in my life or that you're even looking at something that I cannot believe you would do that How sad that is. And you know what? That's the response that I've had when I've gone to individuals one-on-one. Many times, not every time, some have been restored quickly. But it's a painful, heart-wrenching, a journey filled with agony that both will endure if we allow pride and if the individual allows pride to sneak up. So if they do not... Submit to that, repent of that, be not restored. What's the second step? Witnesses. Take two or three witnesses now. Now you go, you set up another time, set up another meeting. And now you're bringing someone else along, and now there's two or three witnesses. And you're, you're starting to approach this thing once again, this sin that you're overtaking in, or the individual's overtaking in. Now you're bringing along two or three witnesses and they're there just to verify the facts, just to say, hey, this is what was said, this is what was unfolded, this was what was unpacked. They're there with the same heart of restoration and compassion and mercy and trying to restore that individual. Now, by the way, guys, this, this is hard stuff, isn't it? None of us like to do any of this stuff, do we? Who enjoys this? Nobody does. But is it required of us as Christian brothers and sisters? Is it? Yeah, it is. It really is. So if then the individual does not respond with two or three witnesses, what's the next step? Bring it before 
the body, the leadership, the body of the church. And then, unfortunately, if the individual still does not repent, and that's what the scripture talks about, turn him over, his body over to Satan for the judgment on the flesh. Okay? Not soul, on the flesh. And we unpacked that particular part last week. And uh, you can get to the podcast. But, but we're supposed to mourn. Matter of fact, look, if you will, verse 1 and 2. It's widely reported there's sexual immorality among you, the kind that's not even condoned among the Gentiles. You're inflated with pride instead of filled with grief. So Paul's saying you should be mourning. You should be filled with grief. And the, the word grief there or mourning is the same, same word that's used with, when it talks about the loss of a loved one. Uh, a close family member that dies or passes away and, and we're, we're grieving. So we're to mourn over that sin. The second thing, we're to judge the sin. That's verses 3 down through verse number, number 5. And we're going to deal with today with purging the sin. And that's verses 6 down through verse number, number 13. Let me, let's, let's look at that. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast permeates the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old yeast so you may be a new batch since you are unleavened. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore let us, let us observe the feast, not with old yeast or with the yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You know what this is a picture of? Paul is bringing a, an Old Testament principle and picture, a feast... And applying it to the New Testament church. It's really a picture of the, of the Passover supper. That's mentioned back in Exodus chapter number 12. Matter of fact, I want you to turn there. I want to read a portion of Exodus chapter 12. For those that may not be familiar with this. This is the Passover. And by the way, this was one of the questions on the survey from last week. And what was the last plague? For the judgment on Egypt, what was it? The death of the firstborn, right? Now, there was a way that your firstborn could survive. There was a way that the death angel would pass over you. And there's some great old hymns and wonderful old songs. And my wife and many of you used to sing years ago. And, and I love that old song, When I See the Blood, I Will Pass Over You. Anybody remember that song? When I see the blood... When I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass, I will pass over you. Remember that song? Wonderful old song. What I love about those old hymns, they are filled with tremendous doctrine. And here's one of the things we see here in this doctrine. And we see that if we have the blood applied, the death angel will pass over. Now, I want to I do some teaching here because this is the principle that we find carried out in, in the New Testament church. We find it carried over from Exodus chapter number 12. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, verse 2, This month is to be the beginning of months for you. It's the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's household. One animal per household. If the household is too small for a whole animal... That person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. And you should, you should apportion the animal according to what each person will eat. Verse 5. 
You must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats, and you are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. And then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. And you must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat them. And they are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it, roast it over the fire along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roast it over fire its head as well as its legs and inner organs. Do not let any of it remain until morning. You must burn up any, of, any part of it that does remain until morning. In verse 11, here is how you must eat it. Dress for travel, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. Verse 12, he says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. I am the Lord, and I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. Verse 13, the blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguished mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day is to be a memorial for you, and you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statue. You must eat, here we go now, you must eat unleavened bread for seven days. And on the first day, you must remove yeast from your houses. And whoever eats what is leavened from the first day through the seventh day must be cut off from Israel. Now, you understand... What the, what the Passover meal represents. It represents when the death angel came and passed over them and judgment was not applied to whoever was in the house and their firstborn was not killed. Now, what was the only thing that would save them from the judgment, the Passover, the death angel coming by? The only thing that would save them was the blood. And the blood from the animal that they slaughtered at twilight, the meat that they're eating, roasted over fire, they're to take hyssop, as, pa, as Moses records a little bit later in the chapter, and they're to go over the lintel and the doorpost. And they're to put the blood over the door. And if the blood is applied, the death angel will pass over. And there's great symbolism there about our salvation that I'll that I'm not going to have time to unpack, but you can, you can certainly see it there. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. The New Testament teaches, guys, listen, we are born again by the blood that was shed of Jesus Christ. And that's where we get our redemption. But now they are to commemorate this day once a year. They're to remember this day. They're to teach it to their children, generation after generation after generation. And the way they do that is with the Passover meal. Now look what he says in verse 15. You must eat unleavened bread for seven days. On the first day, you must remove yeast from your houses. And whoever eats what is leavened from the first day from the Sabbath must be cut off from Israel. You are to hold a sacred assembly on the first day and another sacred assembly on the seventh day. No, may, no work may be done on these days except for pre preparing what people need to eat. And you may do only that. You are, verse 17, you are to observe the festival of unleavened bread. 
Because on this very day, I brought your ranks out of the land of Egypt. And you must observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent statue. And you are to eat unleavened bread on the first month from the evening of the 14th day of the month until the evening of the 21st day. Verse 19, yeast must not be found in your houses. If you underline your, anything in your Bibles or mark, right there you need to mark that. Yeast must not be found in your houses for seven days. It doesn't say it's never supposed to be there, but for these seven days, everything's got to be completely removed. If anyone eats something leavened, that person, whether a foreign resident or native of the land, must be cut off from the community of Israel. It's one thing you need to understand Whenever we're talking about this purging, and by the way, the death angel that passed over and the blood that was applied is a picture of Jesus dying on the cross and the blood being applied and and the judgment of sin, of death and hell will be passed over if that's been applied to our life. We see that picture. The other picture you need to see in this is that leaven is a type of sin. It's a picture of sin. And the people of Israel were to completely remove all leaven, all yeast from their house whenever they were observing this meal for a period of seven days. Now, what are one of the things that we know about yeast or leaven, which is a picture of sin? We know that just a little bit of yeast works secretly and it affects the entire loaf of bread And what usually takes place, and you ladies are going to know this, you men probably know it because you enjoy it so good, you know those big, hot yeast rolls that are just so inflated? And What causes that? Is it leaven or unleavened bread? Leavened bread. It's the yeast that is in there that permeates the entire dough and causes the entire dough to rise up And it's wonderful to eat, is it not? But in this sense, the yeast or the leaven is a picture of sin. And God says you must remove, when you're observing this Passover meal or, or this feast of unleavened bread, for seven days all yeast is to be removed from the entire house. And then he says, during that seven day period, if anybody eats yeast, they're to be removed from the congregation of Israel. You say, why are we getting hung up in all this stuff? This is the basis. This is the foundation. This is the root of church discipline. That's what Paul is referencing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He's going all the way back to the Passover meal and how the children of Israel were to observe that. And here's one thing that Paul knows, one thing that God knows, one of the reasons why this is in Scripture. God and the Apostle Paul both knew this, that a little bit of yeast in the congregation will affect the entire congregation as a little bit of yeast And bread affects the entire loaf of bread or the entire batch of dough. So therefore, sin must be purged. Now, I'm primarily talking about unconfessed, unrepented, known sin in an individual's life. 
and living in that sin with such a rebellious spirit. Now, in this particular chapter 5, it was talking about sexual immorality. In this particular chapter, it was talking about a man in the church that was having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And the bad thing about it, if that's not bad enough, is that the church was puffed up. You see the analogy here? With pride. Instead of being filled with grief and mourning and dealing with the individual, they were proud of the fact that they were a church where all we preach is love and everybody can come and sit in our congregation and never fall under conviction and never be challenged with sin in your life and you never hear anything negative hogwash it does matter how we live can I get a witness right there it does matter. Now, in this chapter, it was talking about sexual immorality with a young man that was having sexual relationships with his mother-in-law. The entire church knew it. Outside the church, they knew it. And they said that type of sin is not even condoned among the Gentiles, the unbelievers in the world. They would not even accept that type of sin. But it's being allowed in the church. Now, here's where I think sometimes we miss the mark. A lot of times as Christians, we will categorize and we will rate sin. And we will say there are some sins that are worse than others, but there are some sins that's kind of okay because everybody does it. And it's a little thing. I want to know, who gave you the authority to rate sin on a scale of 1 to 10? And 1 being not too bad and 10 being extremely bad. We can never do an 8, 9, or 10. But a 1, 2, or 3 is kind of acceptable because everybody does. Let me tell you something. Jesus died for your 1, 2, and 3 sins. Hello? Do you not? We don't have the right. We do not have the authority to say that some sin is acceptable and other sins are just not acceptable. Listen, no sin is acceptable. That includes gossip, the sin of gossip. It's not acceptable. The sin of tearing down a brother or a sister, it's not acceptable. And what needs to take place is church discipline needs to take place. Even with gossip. Hello? I know I'm preaching to the choir here for the Bible class, but I want you to see how important it is. Because a little bit of leaven affects what? The entire loaf of bread. And a little bit of unconfessed, unrepented sin affects the entire congregation. And by the way, according to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, whenever, let's just use gossiping. I mean, yeah, I hope and pray we don't get to the state that this man was in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. But we probably do dibble around with gossip and talking about somebody and, and sowing discord, division a little bit in the congregation. I've seen it. You've seen it. We've all dealt with that. So what do we need to do according to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18? 
You know what you're supposed to do, Wayne? Gary? Brad? Don't answer. I'm just pointing to, I'm just trying to include everybody. <laughs> All of us. You know what we're to do, Eldon? Cecil? You know what we're to, Bo? You know what we're to do? If you personally hear somebody gossiping, if you personally hear somebody sowing discord, if you personally hear that, don't run and come tell me. You start the process of church discipline. You confront that individual with their sin. You go one-on-one with that brother or that sister. Hello? A lot of times, no, that's a preacher's job. I'm going to go tell the preacher, now you get, no, no, it doesn't work like that. You're the one that is aware. You're the one that knows. You're the one that's involved. You should be the one that is spiritual enough to go to that individual and say, you know what? I just got to address something that, that I've seen in your life. You're going one-on-one. You're not doing it in front of anyone. You're not trying to, re- trying to embarrass that individual. You're trying to restore that one. Sin is sin. And any, any unconfessed, unrepented sin that we're willfully doing, and sometimes our hearts swell with pride because I got them. I got them. I got them. Hello? That's sin. And you should go to that one individually and try to restore that and confront them with that, with that sin. But then we see back in 1 Corinthians chapter number 5, I've got to hurry. Someone do not let me go to 10.25 today, please. I mean, just start waving. We get to 10.15, somebody start waving, okay? We've got to purge this sin. Now, look if you will. By the way, he says back in verse number 6 that your boasting is not good. All through the book of Proverbs, matter of fact, I, I pulled out about six or eight verses in, that, in Proverbs that deal with how, how pride goeth before destruction. A haughty spirit before fall. Listen, guys, if we allow pride to swell up in our lives, that's a sin. And I guarantee you, you will fall as a result of pride. All through God's word, we can see it. And we've got to purge even that particular sin out. Now, look what he says in verse number 9. And I'm going to try to wrap this thing up here in about about seven minutes. Look what he says here in verse number 9. He said, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, I don't know if you caught that. He said, I wrote. That would mean there's a previous letter. But we are studying what? First Corinthians. That sometimes we inaccurately say that this is the first letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. That's not true. It's the, it's the letter, it's the first letter, the first of two letters that God the Father, through the person of the Holy Spirit, allowed to be in the full canon of Scripture. Okay? you got to remember, what we have here is what God wanted us to know. These are, there were other books that were written. There were many other works. Matter of fact, the very, last, the very last verse, the very last book of the book of John, sometimes we look at this and we think, man, look what all Jesus did. This, this is a drop in a bucket. 
The very last verse of the very last book of the book of John says that Jesus did many other wonderful works and if they were all written down, there would not be enough books or paper or ink to write about all that Jesus did while he was here for 33 and a half years and he only had three years of public ministry. So in three years of ministry, there are not enough pages and not enough ink in the entire world and not enough books to record everything that he did. That blows me away. He was about his father's business, was he not? So just because what we have here, don't, don't think that this is all that was taking place in the New Testament church or even in the ministry of Jesus. But this is, is let me say, this is all that God wanted us to have. And by the way, there aren't any lost books of the Bible. This is it. And I did a whole series of question and answer type um, a uh, series of question and answers, Q&A thing for th- three or four or five consecutive Wednesday evenings where people wrote in questions and gave questions and I answered those according to the Bible. One of the questions was, where are the lost books of the Bible? And I, I thoroughly explained that and you can get the CDs of that. We've got all that still recorded and we're trying to build the archive on the podcast so you can get that. But there aren't any lost books. This is all God wants us to have, okay? Now, with that being said, Paul says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now that was a previous letter, not, in, not included in the canon of Scripture, but a previous letter where Paul said, don't be involved with them. Do not associate with sexually immoral people. Now, they misinterpreted what Paul was saying because look what it says in verse number 10. He says, by no means referring to this world's immoral people or to the greedy or swindlers or to idolaters, otherwise you would have to leave the world. You see, some of the Christians, the people at Corinth, took this to the extreme in Paul's first letter where he said, do not associate with sexually immoral people. You know what they did? They completely isolated themselves. And Paul said, no, I'm not talking about the people of the world. The only way to not be involved with people of the world be for you to be removed from this world. He said, I'm, I'm not saying don't be involved in the world. He said, I'm not saying isolate yourself. I'm saying insulate yourself. Hello? You see, they kind of took that to the extreme. So there he's correcting their false view. He says, but now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, who is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a reviler or drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what is it to me to judge outsiders? He's talking about the world. Do you not judge those who are inside talking about the church? But God judges outsiders. Therefore, he's saying, and he quotes Deuteronomy 17, 7. He says, put away the evil person from among you. And guys, there's a mouthful right there that I'm probably not going to cover. But I'm going to try to get it all covered here so we can be done with this and go to chapter 6 next week. Here's what I want you to know. Paul is saying that we as a church have no right to judge the world. I mean, hey, why does a dog bark? It's his nature. He's a dog. Why does a cat meow? It's its nature. It's a cat. And you can try as hard as you want, but you're not going to make your dog meow like a cat as hard as you may try. It's its nature. We're not to judge the world. You know what? We should expect the world. Whenever I use the word world, I'm talking about unbelievers. I'm talking about people that have not accepted Christ as their Savior. They're living in their sins. They're living in the old man, the old nature. 
We should not expect them to live righteous and holy. But we should expect born-again believers identified with a local assembly in the church, professing to be a Christian, professing to be a member of the church, professing to be members at Victory Church, we should expect you and me to live holy. Hello? Amen? We should not be involved in sin. We should not be meddling around with sin. We should not associate ourselves with sin. So Christians are not to be isolated. We're to be separated. Matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, remember what Paul says there? He says, be ye separate, saith the Lord. Come out from among them. That's where he gives the teachings on how we're not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For you teenagers that are in here and thinking about courting and dating, listen, you are not to be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. Hello? Separation is supposed to be taking place. Not isolation, but insulation and separation taking place in our life. Matter of fact, we are to, we, listen, we cannot avoid contact with sinners, but we can avoid the contamination of sin. 1 Thessalonians 5.22, anybody know that verse? By the way, in my message then, we'll be talking about memorizing Scripture. This is a wonderful verse of Scripture to memorize. And why I say it's wonderful, it has profound truth, profound principle, and it's profoundly short. It says, avoid all appearance of evil. Avoid the appearance. If it appears to be evil, if it appears to be evil, avoid it. Why? Because we are Christians. We are believers. We're members of the local New Testament church. We're to strive to live holy. We're to judge ourselves. We're not to be contaminated. We are to avoid all appearance of evil. Now, just let me wrap it up. I've got to stop. There's so much more I could say on this, but I've got to move on from this chapter. Let me, let me close out with a verse or two of Scripture, and I'm done right here. For whoever's waving, it's 10.15, okay? I'm done, promise you. James chapter 5. And by the way, there's far more that can be said on this subject. I haven't expounded it. I've really just put a shovel, of, put the shovel down, got one shovel full of dirt out and turned it over. That's all I've done. There's far more that could be expounded on this, on this subject. But in James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, let's close with this. He says, my brothers, stop. Who's he addressing? Who is he addressing? The church. He's addressing Christian brother and sisters, believers, born again believers. My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, he should know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his life from death and cover a multitude of sin. Guys, you know who the Lord placed the responsibility on to confront sin in the church and to restore a brother or sister into a right relationship and fellowship with the church and with the Lord? You know whose responsibility that is? That's ours as a church family. We are responsible 
Matter of fact, there's a phrase in Scripture that talks about being your brother's keeper. Matter of fact, you remember who, remember who asked that? Am I my brother's keeper? Anybody remember who asked that question? Who? Cain. Okay. When what? When he killed Abel and the Lord was asking him, what, where's Abel? Your brother? Who am I? Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. You are responsible for your brother and your sister in the Lord. We are accountable to each other. And if any of us see one of our own, I'm talking, I'm not talking about the world. I'm not even talking about people that sit in our services. I'm talking about people that are members of our church. That's where the judgment has to be. Being members in our church. Not people that just come in the doors. Right? We want the world to come and sit in our congregation, in our fellowship, in our services, don't we? Sure we do. We want them to come and sit and be in a place where they can be influenced by the gospel and give their lives to Christ. I'm talking about within the membership of our church. The accountability is on you and it's on me to hold each other accountable for the life and the lifestyle that each of us are living. That's a tremendous responsibility. And by the way, you, along with myself, one day will stand before the Lord and we will give an account on how we carried out this responsibility. Now, you've just submitted yourself to some teaching today of God's word. Therefore, because you have heard, you know. So now that you have heard and you know, you are now held accountable. So now one day, whenever you get to God, you can't say, well, I didn't know that. He'll take you back to this day when you were revealed what the Word of God said about what your responsibility as a local church member really is on how it's our job to be our brother's keeper. And if one strays from the truth and we turn him back, we have saved him from a lifestyle of sin. That's awesome. Let's pray. Father, God, this is not an easy subject. It's not even easy to teach. And I know there's going to be some that completely disagree. But God, they're disagreeing with you and with your word. God, help us. Help us, God. To realize that we have a tremendous responsibility to our brothers and sisters in Christ that are members here at Victory Church. It's our job to minister one to another. It's our job to be our brother's keeper. It's our job, if we see someone overtaken in a fault or a sin, that we go to them in the spirit of meekness to restore such a one into a right fellowship with you and fellowship with the church. God, help us to do this with hearts that are broken. Lord, help us to mourn over sin. Help us to judge the sin in our fellowship, in our church. And help us to purge that sin. And may we do all of that in the spirit of Jesus. Because it's for his glory. And the purity of his church. That we do just that. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. That's hard teaching I know. We'll be in chapter 6 next week. Okay. To